Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. Uh, my name is Tim Clemens, and I want to think today with you about greatness. It's interesting, throughout history, there are a small handful of people whose lives have been deemed significant enough to have the epithet great attached to their name. And so probably you'll know some of them. There was Cyrus the Great. He was the king of Persia and maybe around 500 BC. There was Gregory the Great. He was actually Pope of Rome in around 500 AD. Uh, but somewhere in the middle is perhaps what we might say the, the, the most well-known of all of them, which was Gregory the Great. Uh, you'll probably know or be vaguely aware he took over his father's kingdom of Macedon at the age of 20. And just 10 years later, by the age of 30, he had created what has become or really was or is, continues to be one of the greatest and largest empires in the history of the world. What did you get done by 30, hey? Um, now, the only reason he dies, actually, by the age 32, is not because he's killed in battle. As far as we can tell, he caught some infectious disease. Uh, either that he was assassinated, no one's really sure. But the point is, history has deemed each of these men great. Now, I don't know about you, but there's certainly a part of me, not all that deep down, frankly, that longs to be great. Not exactly that I'm hoping that history will remember me as Tim the Great, although frankly, if you want to start a campaign to that effect, I'm not going to object. But I want my life to count for something. You know what I mean? Like I, I want my life to actually have some level of significance. Now, before you judge me as conceited and proud, I think deep down you're that way too, even if it is just amongst your family and friends. Because think about it, what's the alternative? Do you really want to get to the end of your life and have as the final word spoken over it, useless, <laughs> wasted? Of course not. You long, you desire to have a life of significance. You want it to count for something. You want a word of affirmation and approval spoken over your life. Now, as we're going to see today... Uh, this desire, this longing for affirmation and approval is often twisted and distorted by sin, but it's not evil, it's not wrong in and of itself. Actually, it's what God is going to bestow upon His faithful servants on the last day. And so just by way of example, uh, think of the parable of the talents or bags of gold, depending on the translation, in Matthew 25. Uh, some of you will know the story. It's about a very wealthy master who entrusts some of well his wealth to three different servants. Then he goes on a journey. And at the end, the master comes back. And when he does, he calls his servants to himself. And to the two that invested his wealth and made more, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And to the one who just buried it and did nothing with it, he says, you wicked and lazy servant. Now, the point of the parable is to live in such a way that when Jesus returns, we hear those words, well done, good and faithful, not wicked and lazy. The reason I share that is that in some way, today's passage is much the same, but just applied to greatness. See, I hate to break it to you, but the chances of this world remembering you as so-and-so the great aren't strong. But the hope, the promise, the beauty of the gospel and the promise of this passage is that actually God might. In the kingdom of God, it is possible for me to be Tim the Great. And the same is true for you. 
And so again, I want to think with you about greatness this morning and what this passage has to teach us about it. So what does it teach us? Well, as we read it out, you might have noticed it basically consists in the disciples failing on four consecutive occasions to be great. And so really, in some ways, the lesson of the passage is just don't be like the disciples. But in the interest of giving us something slightly more positive, we're going to reframe it. And uh, I'll give you four characteristics of those who are great in the kingdom of God. It's not really a title, but if you want, write that down. Four characteristics of those who are great in the kingdom of God. I'll give them to you as we go. Characteristic number one, those who are great put their faith and confidence in God. Those who are great put their faith and confidence in God. Now, in terms of the context, uh, you'll remember if you were with us last week, Jesus has just been up the mountain with Peter, James, and John. It was the transfiguration. The thing is, while Jesus has been up the mountain and all sorts of stuff is going on up there, A whole lot has been happening at the bottom of the mountain as well with the remaining disciples. And so the crowds have come, they've gathered in search of Jesus, and so the disciples are trying to look after him, care for them. Problem is, it hasn't gone all that well. And so we read in verse 37. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him, that is Jesus. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. Now, it's clear from the father's description, isn't it, that this boy is not well. Uh, He's foaming at the mouth. He's prone to seizures. He cries out, all of which certainly sounds like a severe case of epilepsy. Although, at least on this occasion... Uh, the author of this gospel, Luke, wants us to know that the source of his illness is demonic. That's in verse 42. Now, Luke's a doctor. He knows the difference between the two. And he says, at least here, the source was demonic. And so it's clear that the boy needs help. The main thing to notice, though, is that the apostles, the disciples, were powerless to do so. And so we notice this in verse 40. The man tells Jesus, I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Now, if you're coming to the Gospel of Luke fairly fresh, maybe you haven't been with us for the series, that probably won't shock you. Uh, After all, you're thinking, oh, well, I'd probably feel powerless in the face of a scary demon too. But if you've been with us for the series, particularly a couple weeks back, something about this ought to surprise you. After all, look at what Jesus did Back at the start of this chapter, Luke chapter 9, verse 1. So when Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. Notice those two words, all demons. Not just some demons, not just certain kinds of demons, But even the scary demons, like uh, my kids have just started collecting Pokemon cards and I was Googling during the week, what's the worst kind of Pokemon? Uh, Apparently there's sort of different kinds. I can't even remember what I read, but if you're into Pokemon, even the bad kind, Jesus gave his disciples authority to cast out. Did I just equate Pokemon with demons? I guess I might have. But the question is, why couldn't they do it? Why couldn't they cast this demon out? You know, was Jesus power enough? Was it just on loan? 
And so, you know, a little bit like an ebook from a digital library, at the end of the loan period, it sort of just disappears from your catalogue, return to sender. Is that, you know, they only got it for the short-term mission trip? Well, I'm not so sure. And the reason why I say that is I think we get a clue why they failed to cast this demon out in what Jesus says next. Look at verse 41. He says, You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here, he says finally to the father. Right, Jesus is clearly frustrated. It's not just because he hasn't had his morning coffee. It's because he perceives in somewhere a lack of faith. Right? That word, you unbelieving generation, that is literally you faithless generation. So he's angry at a lack of faith. The question is, whose lack of faith is he angry at? Is it the father's? Is that why his son wasn't healed? Because he lacked faith? No. He certainly brings the child to the disciples, well, probably to Jesus, to get him healed. Is it the crowd that lack faith? Well, it could be. Some scholars think so. But I think a far more likely answer is that Jesus is speaking about his disciples' lack of faith. Now, I've got a couple of reasons why that is. I won't give them all to you, but probably just two worth knowing. To begin with, the next three stories that we're going to read are all about how the disciples are going to miss the mark. They're going to fail. And so it kind of makes sense if this is the first in a string of four failures. But secondly, and the more significant one, is that if you go and compare this story with Matthew and Mark's version of the same event, they literally tell us the disciples had a lack of faith. And so if you go and look at Matthew's gospel, when the disciples, after this whole event, they say, hey, Jesus, why couldn't we do it? And he says to them, it's because of your little faith. But suppose we ask, well, how exactly was their lack of faith manifested? Like, what did it look like? Imagine you were there and you saw this failed exorcism. How, how did it go down? Was the issue a lack of confidence in God's power? And so, for example, this boy, uh, father is bringing his boy along and they see the boy is foaming at the mouth and is crying out. They're like, oh no, not the bad kind of Pokemon. We haven't seen this one before. And we, Jesus gave us authority, but does it really extend to this kind? This is the bad kind. And so they pray, but their prayers are sort of mixed with a bit of doubt and a lack of confidence in God's power. And so in the end, he doesn't answer the prayer. Is that how it goes down? Well, something in Mark's account makes me think not. I say that because when the disciples ask Jesus why it didn't work in Mark's account, he says... This kind only comes out by prayer, which is kind of curious because the implication is they weren't praying. Think it through. Therefore, I suspect the problem was not so much a lack of confidence in God, but overconfidence in themselves. Think about it. They have just come off the back of a short-term mission trip. We're not told, but almost certainly, at least a couple of them have successfully cast out various different kinds of demons. Jesus has given them that authority. And so I wonder if maybe a more likely, and I'm being a bit playful here, you know, imagine the father bringing his boy 
to the disciples, and then one of them kind of, let's just for the sake of example, uh, argument, say it's Andrew, and he looks at this thing and goes, ha-ha, the old seizure demon. I know just what to do. Mm, didn't work. And then Thaddeus is like, mate, you're doing it all wrong. It's more of a twist in the wrist, twist in the... Like, Again, I'm being silly, but think it through. How does it work? And do they all have a turn? Because he says, I brought it to your disciples, but they couldn't. Do they start overconfident and by the end they're like, oh, no, oh, no. So they lack confidence. Again, we don't know. What we do know is that they lacked faith. They weren't trusting in God. They didn't have faith and confidence in his power. And so rather than hearing the word of affirmation, good job, guys. What do they hear? You unbelieving and perverse generation. Ouch. Now we're going to move on in a moment, but I suppose it's worth just pausing and asking, how does this apply to us? How does it apply to you? Because uh, you are not like the apostles. You haven't necessarily been given the same authority as they have. But we have, if you trust in Christ, you've been gifted by the Spirit and commissioned by Jesus with a job to do. To be a servant and a herald of his coming kingdom. Uh, to take your stand against the world, the flesh and the devil. To live a life to the glory of God. Now the question is, where is your faith and confidence as you do it? Because we all do it in a variety of different areas and spheres of life. But as you go about that task, where is your confidence? If I just think about myself for a moment. Uh, when I'm tempted to ask God, God... Why aren't, why aren't more people's lives being transformed at Grace City? Why, why don't we see more people trust in Christ? Why don't we see more of us grow to maturity in Christ? Why are we all caught up with besetting sins? Why aren't we leaving everything behind and pursuing you with everything we've got? Sometimes I wonder if I ask that question, maybe God would say, oh yeah, that only happens when you pray. Almost as if the rebuke might be, Tim, the problem is not so much that as you lead this thing, you lack confidence, but your confidence is in the wrong place. Uh, all too often, you're trying to do it in your own strength and your own power, rather than putting your confidence in your faith in me. We're talking about the kingdom of God. I'm the one who has the power, so your strength, your confidence needs to be in me. What's it like for you? I don't know. Either way, though, the first lesson... Jesus is trying to teach his disciples here and us through them is that true greatness is really seen in those who put their trust, their faith, and their confidence in God. If you want a perfect example of it, just look at Jesus, because look at how the little, that little story ends. Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, gave him back to his father, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Well, that's greatness. Those who are great... Put their faith and confidence in God. That's mark number one. <clears throat> mark number two, characteristic number two. Those who are great, listen carefully to the word of God. Those who are great, listen carefully to the word of God. Let's read together from verse 43. It says, While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully. To what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Now just notice 
how the crowd has responded. Everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did. Isn't there a part of you that wants that? Come on, be honest. Don't you want people to marvel at what you do? To at least give you respect, a bit of honor for the things that you do? Maybe you're more godly than I am. I bet the disciples wanted it. And so notice where Jesus goes next. Because he says, guys, listen carefully to what I'm about to say to you. Literally, he says, let these words sink into your ears. And then he tells them, the Son of Man, that's Jesus' way of speaking about himself, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Uh, In other words, the crowds aren't always going to marvel at what I do and praise God because of me. They're not always going to think I'm great. Actually, they're going to turn on me. And even though I am the Messiah, they are going to hand me over to be killed, to be crucified. Now look at how they respond in verse 45. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them. And so they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. They didn't get it. Question is why though? Luke, you notice, he actually told us two reasons. The first is that it was hidden from them. And the second is that they didn't ask him about it. So let's just push into both of those for a moment. So suppose we ask, who hid it from them? Well, truth is, scholars debate on this one. You know, is it God? Is it Satan? Uh, to be frank, I've always just assumed it was God. But I read something this, make which, this week which maybe, got, maybe that's not quite right. Because you see a similar kind of thing happen in an episode at the end of Luke's Gospel. It's Luke 24. Some of you will know the story. Uh, the disciples, Jesus has just been raised from the dead. And he then walks with two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. But Luke tells us they were kept from recognizing him. Now again, the question is, well, Who kept them from recognizing him? Was it God and he's just waiting for like the big reveal as Jesus breaks bread over dinner? Surprise! Or was it Satan? Well, we're not specifically told, but it is interesting to note how Jesus responds to these downcast and depressed disciples when they tell him that they really had hope that this Jesus was going to be the Messiah. Look at how he responds. This is in Luke 24. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Right? Notice he doesn't say, Don't worry, guys. You didn't stand a chance. God's hidden it from you. Now, the implication seems to be, even if the meaning was hidden from them, they're still culpable. After all, it it was their folly, right? You foolish. It was their slowness of belief, their unbelief that ultimately led to their lack of understanding, which brings us back to our passage and that second problem I mentioned. Because remember, it's both hidden from them, but then we're told they're afraid to ask. They don't ask Jesus what he means. Now, Luke says they're afraid to ask him. And so maybe we think, oh, you know, they just don't want to expose their ignorance and get told off again because they've already failed once. And that might be part of it. But it is interesting, in Matthew's version of this, after Jesus tells them, I'm going to be betrayed, Matthew tells us the disciples were filled with grief. In other words, they know what he means. They understood the words. It's just that 
those words don't quite fit with their hopes, their dreams, their expectations of the Messiah. Because what we might say, therefore, is that part of the reason they don't understand is because they didn't want to understand. Their hearts didn't want it. They wanted a conquering Messiah, and Jesus is saying he's going to be a crucified Messiah. They want a great, glorious Messiah. Jesus says, no, I'm going to be a great, suffering Messiah. So they don't listen and they don't ask. Now, before you judge them, it is worth asking yourself, you know, where do I do the same thing? Uh, How often do you read something in God's Word as kind of a big call and rather than interrogating it and asking questions, you sort of just try to move on because you kind of hope it doesn't mean what it sort of sounds like it means. So we, we just quickly move on. You know, is it in the area of generosity? It's more blessed to give than receive. Well, it's just, I don't understand that one. Let's keep moving. Uh, or sex and relationships. You know, flee from sexual immorality. Don't even let a hint of it be in you. What good is it to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? We just move on. Uh, so often, like the disciples, we, we fail to understand because we, we don't really want to understand. Our hardness of heart doesn't want to interrogate it. And so it's kept from us. But Jesus says, you want to be great? Listen carefully to God's word. And again, we'll move on. But you want to see an example of this? Think of Jesus. Think of the boy Jesus growing up, studying the scriptures, and as a boy, seeing so clearly what all his contemporaries failed to see, that the Messiah must suffer, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. He will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. Did he block his ears? Did he harden his heart? No, he lent in. He let those words sink in deep. He knew the path to greatness was going to go through the cross, through suffering. He says, you want to follow me? It's a path of suffering through to the cross, then greatness. So he tells the disciples, son of man will be delivered into the hands of men. That's number two. Number three, uh, those who are great welcome the lowly in the name of God. Those who are great welcome the lowly in the name of God. Read with me from verse 46. We're told, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Now, it boggles the mind, doesn't it, how they're having this conversation, particularly given the failure that kind of just happened. You'd assume that maybe they'd be having a little bit of humility. Although, then again, maybe it's actually Peter, James, and John who started this conversation because they didn't have, they were up with Jesus on the mountain while the other guys were failing. We don't know. Either way, uh, an argument breaks out. And so look at how Jesus responds, verse 47. We told Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. And then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Now, there's a fair bit going on there. But just imagine the scene. The disciples are having this argument. 
And then Jesus goes and or finds this, this little kid. We're not exactly told how old the kid is. a little child, so he can stand. So he's not a baby, but he's little. So let's just, for the sake of argument, let's go four or five. He brings this four or five-year-old with him. And then in the presence of the disciples, stands the little four-year-old next to him. And at that point, the disciples can see two figures. Uh, one of the figures, Jesus, is of infinite value in their eyes. And the other, the child, is of absolutely no value in their eyes. Uh, much like today, a child, you know, they might become a somebody, but they start as a nobody. And so really, the disciples see before them the greatest in Jesus and the least in the child. And then Jesus says something strange. He says, despite appearances, there is some sense in which these two, myself and the child, are interchangeable. Why? Because well, if you welcome this little child, and by welcome he means love, serve, show hospitality to, care for the child, and you do it in my name, by which he means you do it for my sake, because you belong to me, that's why you're doing it. Then he says, in so doing, when you love, you serve, you show hospitality to the child, you love, serve, you show hospitality to me. In other words, those who associate with the lowly end up almost in a hidden way associating with God. One commentator puts it like this, keeping company with the lowly child turns out to be, in a hidden way, an extending of hospitality to Jesus himself. Now, the child is supposed to be representative of all the lowly, all, all those who are insignificant in the eyes of the world. And so, again, maybe just ask yourself, how do I treat the lowly and the unimportant in this world? Do I welcome them in the name of Jesus? Or do I overlook them? Do I ignore them? Do I sort of walk around them because I'm about greatness and the lowly have nothing to contribute to my pursuit of greatness. Actually, Jesus says quite the opposite. Because you want to be great, true greatness is seen in associating with and welcoming and caring for the lowly like the little child. Now, we could go in so many different ways, but uh, just very quickly, I do want to apply it to kids' ministry in part because of what we heard earlier. You see, uh, our church is no different in this, but I, as I talk to other churches and church leaders, it's clear that pretty much every church struggles to find enough people to run and lead their kids' ministry. Uh, and from a worldly perspective, it kind of makes sense because it's a thankless task. The kids, they, they don't say, th well, the well-behaved ones do, you know, but, but uh, most don't say thank you. It, you're behind closed doors. No one really notices it's a little different to the preaching or, you know, the band or the person, at the, the host or the cafe. Not that there's all much glory in those either, but at least, at least you're dealing with adults. With the kids' ministry, it's like, well, they're kids. <laughs> I wonder how our approach and our thinking about the greatness of those involved in kids' ministry might change if we let the reality of Jesus' words sink into our ears. He says, when you welcome a child in my name, you welcome me. And she takes it higher. He says, when you welcome a child in my name, you welcome me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes God. You want to talk about greatness? What could be greater than playing host to God himself?
You want to play host to God? Welcome the little one. Now, in the eyes of the world, it's, gonna, it's, it's not going to look great. All, all they'll see is the child. They'll see you wiping the snotty nose. Or if we step out of kids' ministry for a moment, they'll just see the sick. They'll just see the, the aging. Are they, they were good in their heyday, but they've moved on. They'll just see the unemployed, the poor, the, the sick. The, but God will see an act of greatness. Because those who are truly great welcome the lowly in the name of God. Again, we'll move on, but think about Jesus. Where do you see the greatness of Jesus most clearly? It's interesting to ask that having come off the back of the transfiguration, because you certainly see a whole lot of glory there, don't you? That his face is transfigured on the mountain, on the outside you see what's on the inside as the veil of his flesh. In some ways you kind of see really who he is. I mean, there's greatness, there's glory. And yet then he tells his disciples, you really want to be great? Well, then become the least. And so I wonder, just maybe, don't you see the greatness of Jesus most at the cross? where he dies with arms open wide to welcome the lowly, uh, sinners like you and me, into his Father's kingdom. That's greatness. Fourth and finally, uh, those who are great rejoice in the growth of the kingdom of God. Those who are great rejoice in the growth of the kingdom of God. Let's read from verse 49. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Now again, hard to uh, get past the irony of that statement. Like having failed so spectacularly just moments earlier to cast out the demon, they're like, here's someone doing it successfully. Let's stop him. <laughs> Why? Because he's not one of us. Oh. Now, if you only had this story, on its own, without the other three, maybe attempted to give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, it's, it's, Jesus dropped his power somewhere, someone else found it, and he's using it without his permission. Like, they're, they're protective? No. But given the fact that it kind of comes in at the end of four, clearly it's a little more sinister. The motives aren't pure. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a great essay called The Inner Ring. And it's all about... Uh, how one of the biggest drivers of human behavior is the desire to be included, kind of to be in the inner ring. And he, he talks about how there is, a, there is a sense of joy that comes from being included, which is okay, but there's also this perverse sense of joy that comes when others are excluded. And so he writes this. He says, but your genuine inner ring exists for exclusion. There'd be no fun if there were no outsiders. The invisible line would have no meaning unless most people were on the wrong side of it. Exclusion is no accident. It's the essence. Now, the problem for the disciples wasn't so much that they were in the inner ring of Jesus, but that they took a perverted sense of joy in the fact that others weren't. That's why this guy is such a threat to them. Because he's succeeding where they're failing. His greatness is becoming, in their minds, a threat to their greatness. You know, Lewis goes on and says, once you're in the ring, you spend the rest of your life looking over your shoulder, hoping that no one else is going to come in and take your place. Uh, we're not told, I don't know if it is, but you wonder, like, are they, 
are they partly threatened by this guy, feeling like, you know, he's succeeding, we're failing, is he going to take our place? Either way, they try to stop him. But just think through how perverted that is, how unloving that would have been. I mean, think about the life of someone who's demon-possessed. Uh, we've met a handful of them in Luke's Gospel. There was the demoniac. This is a guy who had a legion of demons. He was ostracized. He lived in the tombs all alone. He cut himself, himself with rocks and stone. He's bleeding. He's half-naked. He's frothing at the mouth. Or think of the guy earlier in this story, the little boy. Uh, in I think it's Mark's Gospel. We're told that this demon used to actually throw him into the fire, used to try and drown him in water and attempt to kill him. These are people who are utterly tormented physically, spiritually. And yet here along comes a guy who's trying to help him. He's trying to help these people. And he's not doing it with some weird hocus-pocus. He's, he's not doing it with witchcraft. He's doing it in the name of Jesus. And what's more, they're listening to him and they're coming out of him. And he's actually helping people. And what do the disciples do? Uh, we'd like you to stop that, thank you very much, because you're not one of us. Look at how Jesus responds, verse 50. Don't stop him, Jesus said, for whoever's not against you is for you. Right, the problem with the disciples was that they cared far more about their own kingdom than God's kingdom. All right, think it through. If they actually cared about God's kingdom, they wouldn't care who was scoring the goals. If they really cared about God's kingdom, then as long as people were helped and the kingdom of God advanced, their team is winning. But in their twisted pursuit of greatness... Well, if they don't get to score the goals, then I don't want anyone else scoring them either. And one of the most dangerous places to be when you're in Christian ministry is a pastor's conference. Because uh, we all turn into, well, we just imitate the apostles, the disciples. Because uh, when you hear about other churches and they're kicking goals, there is this twisted part of you that struggles to rejoice because really you wish that your church was the one kicking the goals. Or if it turns out that your church is kicking a goal or two, then like the disciples, you're like, oh, maybe just maybe we're the greatest. Now, it's thoroughly embarrassing to admit that to you, but I'm heartened in some ways, in a twisted way, that I find good company with the disciples. <laughs> Now, again, it's probably not like that for you, but so I, I can't draw the application for you. But my question is, where are you prone to that kind of behaviour? Because uh, it ought not be that way among the people of God. And so let us be a church that rejoices when God's kingdom grows, wherever it happens. If it's here, praise God. If it's down the road, praise God. If it's our denomination, praise God. If it's another, praise God. If someone plants a church and they grow way quicker than us and they're right down the road or just next door, praise God. Because <laughs> God's kingdom grows. As long as God's kingdom is growing, we're going to rejoice with Jesus because that's a mark of true greatness. Let me finish. Gracie, do you want to be great? Do you want your life to count for something? Do you want to have a word of affirmation and approval spoken over you? Of course you do. It's because it's what you're made for. 
But there is one problem. And that is, left to ourselves, we're actually never going to hear them. I say that because think it through. If not even the disciples could get it right, what chance have we got? I've used myself a lot, but surely the same is true for you. You're prone to trusting yourself. You don't always listen carefully to God's word. Uh, You're filled with pride and compare yourself to others. You find it hard to rejoice when others succeed. So I'll say it again, left to ourselves, it turns out true greatness is perhaps beyond our reach. In fact, forget greatness, just garden variety faithfulness. Well done, good and faithful servant. No, truth be told, what we actually deserve is the other one. You wicked and lazy servant. That's how far we all fall short. Left to ourselves, that's where we are. Uh, But the beautiful message of the gospel, the hope and the promise of the Bible, is that we aren't left to ourselves. As we've seen today, uh, God has sent his son. And he sent his son both to show us what true greatness looks like. I think we see that modeled all through today's passage. But almost more importantly, to bring us into greatness. See, the Bible has has a number of different ways of putting this. But think of things like... uh, He became sin so that you, in him, you might become the righteousness of God. Or, you know, though he was rich, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Today we could say, he, though great, became the least so that you, in him, might become great. Grace City, when you trust in Jesus, you enter the kingdom of God by faith and God declares you to be great in his eyes the call of the christian life therefore is actually to live up to that greatness to be who you are in christ to put your faith and your confidence in god to listen carefully to his word to welcome the lowly in his name and to rejoice in the growth of his kingdom why so that you'll be great no because in christ you already are so why don't you join me let's pray thanking god that in his eyes we are great and asking him to help us be great let's pray heavenly father we thank you so much uh, for the disciples and their failures and all that they teach us lord in some ways uh, we see ourselves in them so prone to pride and competitiveness and a lack of faith We ask that you would forgive us for these. We thank you for sending your son to die in our place for our sins, that we might, in your eyes, become great, that we might be rich, that we might be righteous. And Lord, help us now to live those great lives that you've called us to, welcoming others in your name. It's in the name of your son that we pray.